Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 9th September with me, Ian Welsh. We have a bumper episode for you this week. Coming up is Renata Nogueira, South America Sustainability Lead at Cargill, talking with me about the challenges sourcing commodities from Brazil and some of Cargill's degraded land restoration programmes. And a few days ago, I spoke with Tiffany Aries from the Carbon Trust about corporate net zero planning and a new route to net zero standard. In addition, I spoke earlier this week with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop to get an update on the upcoming Sustainable Plastics and Packaging Conference in Amsterdam. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Upmarket UK department store chain Selfridges is planning on having 45% of its transactions as resale, repair, rental or refill by the end of the decade. The move is part of a response, Selfridges says, to customer demand for more sustainable shopping. The chain says that sales of second-hand goods increased by 240% in 2021, with a parallel growth in items repairs, product rental and refill. The Re-Selfridges initiative is part of Selfridges Net Zero Project Earth Plan, which it describes as its vision to reinvent retail, based on three themes of driving transition to more sustainable materials, exploring new business models and challenging the mindsets of partners and customers. Selfridges has recently been bought for an estimated £4 billion by Thai conglomerate Central Group and Australian property business Signa Holding. Cotton sourced from the Chinese region of Xinjiang continues to be a risk for big apparel brands, with some maintaining sourcing links with suppliers linked to the area. The Uyghur minority community in Xinjiang, which produces around one-fifth of the world's cotton, have been subject to forced labour, arbitrary custody and worse, according to many reports. A recent UN report describes crimes against humanity in the region. But despite this, some companies have not cut all ties with Xinjiang's factories. For example, as reported by EcoBusiness, the Japanese Muji brand has clothing lines with labels that acknowledge that they originate in Xinjiang. And earlier this year, German scientists found traces of Xinjiang cotton in Adidas, Puba and Hugo Boss branded apparel. The brands all have robust auditing and supply procedures, of course, and the complex nature of cotton's international supply chains means that it is challenging to entirely eliminate material from specific locations. This is particularly the case where there is evidence that Jinjiang cotton is being passed off as from other locations via intermediaries based elsewhere. However, the risks of having material created through forced labour and torture remain. Activist group Changing Markets has released some new research into the Antarctic Ocean-based krill fishing sector. The Krill Baby Krill report highlights the impacts of intensive krill fishing on the oceans. Much of marine life in the Antarctic either directly eats krill or is one step removed, and it is essential to the entire ecosystem. Intensive krill fishing has significant impact on whales, seals, penguins and others who have to compete with the fishermen. The krill is used to create a feed for aquaculture and for human dietary supplements. Changing Markets argues that the krill fishing industry is unsustainable, threatening as it does one of the most fragile ecosystems on the planet, itself under increasing pressure from climate change. The group has called for an immediate moratorium on Antarctic krill fishing, for the aquaculture sector to switch to alternative feeds, for retailers to stop stocking products linked to krill, and for consumers to boycott krill-based products. The voluntary carbon markets and the sale of carbon credits and verified emission reduction credits continues to grow and grow. Carbon credit trading was around $2 billion in 2021, and some estimates suggest it will reach $50 billion or more by 2030. Many argue that the use of emissions reduction credits to offset unavoidable emissions is a necessary part of achieving net zero. However, there have been concerns at the quality of some credits operating in an unregulated market. And a new initiative from Howden Group, a broker, carbon finance business Respira International, and reinsurance investor 
Nifila Capital have combined to produce an insurance product that provides cover against third-party negligence or fraud, helping to reduce the potential reputational risk of buying carbon credits. This is designed to boost the carbon markets by removing a potential sticking point for companies. And the fact that credits from projects are insured will of course underline their credibility for investors. Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. We'll hear from the likes of Golden Agri Resources, Dole Food, Tesco, Natura, Kraft, Diageo and many more. And I do hope that you can join us. Kicking off the Autumn Events series is our Future of Plastics and Packaging conference on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. To find out how the event is shaping up, I spoke this week with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Hello, thank you for having me back. How is the agenda developing? It's going really well. So the theme of the conference this year is how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver that impact at scale. And we're going to be looking at kind of what progress has been made towards those corporate packaging targets over the past few years, with a focus on product innovation and emerging technologies that will successfully deliver that reduced packaging footprint. And on the first day of the agenda, we're going to be running a number of breakout sessions that tackle very specific questions or issues in depth. For example, some of them we're going to be looking at the role of chemical recycling in a net zero world or practical examples of reuse. And in these specific sessions, we'll be providing kind of clear guidance and practical, tangible results. Are there any new sessions or speakers that have come on board recently? Yes. Yeah, so recently we've confirmed a number of senior speakers from companies such as Mars, Kellogg's, UNEP, Britvic, Tetra Pak, Plastics Europe, Nestle, Lombard Audio, and many, many more. And you can actually see the full list of confirmed speakers on the conference website now. And then in terms of new sessions, there's two specific sessions that we've recently added that I'm personally looking forward to a lot. So the first one is a Q&A with the head of the Secretariat to the Lifecycle Initiative at UNEP that will be exploring how the historic global plastics treaty was going to affect the future of packaging. And then towards the end of the first day, Dylan Lube from ACT Commodities and Steve Hardman from Plastic Collective will be debating whether offset markets and plastic neutrality claims will deliver that lasting change. Excellent. Really interesting sessions. Looking forward to them in particular. What will delegates get out of the event? So delegates will get access to more than 20 breakout and plenary sessions that are all held off the record to ensure kind of that open and honest debate around the major challenges and solutions that exist. On the agenda itself, we've also built in plenty of time for different networking opportunities, which we found at Innovation Forum often leads to very interesting conversations long after the conference is finished. Yes, it's absolutely true. I'm looking forward to getting back to these face-to-face conversations that you have at lunchtime, in the coffee breaks, that are really perhaps sometimes the most important things you take away from the event and the relationships that you develop there. Emily, how can our listeners get involved? So there's two ways they can get involved. If anyone's still interested in joining the event as a sponsor, we do have a handful of speaking opportunities still available. So they can get in contact with my colleague, Anita Thompson, and her email is available on the conference website. Or if people are interested in buying tickets to the conference itself, we've currently got a 200 euro discount on the price of tickets, which is valid until the end of the day on Friday. But we can give you as podcast listeners an extension on that discount. So if you use the code POD200, all lowercase, at the checkout, that discount code will work until the end of the day on Monday, the 12th of September. 
and that can be registered through the conference website. And equally, if anyone is interested in group booking discounts, they can email me directly at emily.herslop at innovationforum.co.uk. Thanks, Emily. So it's a little special discount for podcast listeners. Use the code POD200, all lowercase, and we'll extend the €200 discount on passes until the close of business on Monday, 12th September. All right, Emily, looking forward to the event. It's coming up very soon. See you then, if not before. Thanks, Ian. Recently, I was delighted to speak with Renata Nogueira, South America Sustainability Lead at Cargill, about some of her work on the company's deforestation and conversion free by 2030 target and the challenges sourcing commodities from Brazil in particular. We're going to be looking particularly at your operations in Brazil today. Why don't you start by giving us some insight into the scale of Cargill's operations in Brazil and the importance of Brazil for Cargill as a sourcing country? Well, Brazil is a huge country. The soy producing area is also huge. Just for you to have an idea, we have today approximately 15,000 suppliers of soy. And we also source other crops such as cocoa, palm, cotton, and corn. Brazil's natural ecosystems are critical to the health of the planet. At the same time, they contribute to a more sustainable food supply chain. So we have great opportunities in Brazil to lead the transition of the global agriculture to a more sustainable agriculture. Many things are happening here in this direction, and we are very excited to be here in the country and to have this huge supply chain. So Cargill has pledged to be deforestation and conversion free across the company by 2030. What progress has been made on this? Our commitment to be both deforestation and conversion free spans the global and our priority supply chains of palm, cocoa and soy. We believe that our individual and industry efforts will jointly lead to innovative solutions. In addition to our individual efforts, we are also taking a multi-stakeholder approach, working with farmers, customers, industry groups, NGOs, and governments to drive collective action and transform the food supply chain. Across Cargill, we are making progress by partnering with farmers through protected forests and also other important ecosystems. We are promoting regenerative agriculture practices to mitigate climate change and protected water resources. We are restoring altered land and protect biodiversity to create a forest positive future and deliver innovative solutions to make agriculture more sustainable. There are differences across geographies and commodities that impact our approach, which is why we often look at a landscape approaches. Mapping and monitoring our supply chains to increase traceability and more precisely monitor for potential deforestation is a critical step and we are progressing a lot on that. Today, we have 100% of our cocoa in our direct supply chain traceable to the first point of purchase. 98% of the mills linked to Cargill supply chain are monitored by using satellite imagery to detect potential land use changes in our palm supply chain. And finally, we have Polygon mapped 100% of our direct suppliers in Brazil, which is a huge accomplishment. This progress is critical to eliminating deforestation and conversion and to reach our ultimate goal. You mentioned just now you've polymapped 100% of your suppliers in Brazil. Is that including in soy? 
Yes, I'm speaking about direct suppliers in Brazil from our soy supply chain. And you also mentioned other ecosystems. I imagine we're talking here about the Cerrado grasslands, which of course are a very important ecosystem in Brazil. Cargill has a target of restoring 100,000 hectares of degraded lands, I guess, in the Amazon, in the Amazonian rainforest, and also in the Cerrado, in Brazil, in the next five years. Can you talk a bit about this target and how you'll achieve it? Our team is collaborating on programs and initiatives that will protect forests and other types of native vegetation that includes, like you said, Cerrado. We are partnering with farmers to manage working lands in a more sustainable way and to restore altered land, strengthening the ecosystem in critical areas of Brazil. Our strategic approach is creating programs with farmers at the center. We are partnering on solutions that promote production efficiency and the restoration of altered lands, supporting farmers on environmental regulation and compliance with the forest code, and develop innovative models around conservation. Through Restoring Initiative, Cargill will restore 100,000 hectares in Brazil over the next five years in, in all biomes. In addition to the positive impact of the ecosystem and biodiversity, restoration programs will result in improved farmer livelihoods and increased innovation providing for more efficient and large-scale restoration. Interesting that you talk about having farmers at the centre. Of course, none of these programmes can work if farmers aren't behind the programmes and excited about them and incentivised by them. Clearly, it's an important part of bringing the whole thing together. But I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you're working to protect native vegetation. We've talked about restoring degraded lands. What about protecting existing pristine vegetation? How are you protecting that? Cargill is partnering on a collection of farmer driving programs that will provide technical assistance to help farmers align to environmental regularization and thus protect the native vegetation in Brazil. We believe agricultural systems can provide economic returns to farmers while making efficient use of natural resources and accessible technologies, conserving environmental assets and respecting local communities. We are creating incentive-based programs partnering directly with farmers, providing market-based solutions, technical and financial support, and also working with value chain partners and startups. And what assistance are the farmers, we talked about farmers quite a lot already, but what assistance are they looking for in particular from Cargill? Brazilian farmers want to be in compliance with the forest code, and some of them are struggling on providing to the government quality information about their lands and to restore areas according to the law. It's important to mention that the Brazilian Forest Code establishes that every rural property in Brazil has to keep from 20 to 80 of the area covered with native vegetation. It varies according to the biome that the property is located. Producers that have deficits of native vegetation in their properties, they have to restore. This said, Brazilian farmers are asking for support on providing the right information to the government and also to restore their lands since it will require technical assistance and financial investments. Besides, these farmers are the key to protecting our lands for the future generations. We provide farmers with training programs and innovative new processes and products to drive changes in our supply chain. You mentioned just now that the Brazilian Forest Code requires between 20 and 80% of any area to be natural vegetation. That's quite a big difference. 
When is it 20 and when is it 80? It depends on the type of the vegetation. So if we're talking about Amazon biome, uh, producers have to protect 80% of their lands. So they can only produce or convert 20% of the area. If we are talking about other biomes such as grassland, it's only 20. So it really varies considering the type of vegetation. And it can varies also inside of the same biome. What are the sorts of incentives then that work for farmers when you're working with them to develop more sustainable agricultural practices? Cargill is establishing a collection of farm-driven programs that will provide technical assistance and resources for farmers to promote sustainable production systems and environmental regularization in Brazil. The programs aim to support farmers on environmental regularization, As I said, it's something that producers are looking for. Incentivize low-carbon agriculture systems. Here, producers will demand assistance to change the way they produce. Promote soy production over altered and already opened areas. Sometimes we see the expansion happening in areas that are not open yet, and we want to promote and guarantee that the expansion is on these type of areas, and promoting recovery of degraded pasture lands. I guess a lot of the time the most important thing is to ensure that in circumstances where there is converted land already things don't get any worse and that that land is used for crops if there are going to be crops produced but it's all about trying to keep things getting no worse at the same time as trying to improve and restore as you say. I would imagine then that these sort of programs collaboration is going to be really important with lots of different stakeholders. How can collaboration with other stakeholders help develop programs that are genuinely beneficial for everyone in the value chain? Well, collaboration is critical in delivering innovation solutions. In addition to our individual efforts, we are also taking a multi-stakeholder approach. So we are working with farmers, farmers associations, customers, industry groups, NGOs, and governments to drive collective action and transform the food supply chain. All of us must play a role and work together to mitigate the impact to climate change. We understand that Cargill by itself is not going to change and to make all the changes that we need, but we have the responsibility to put together all these stakeholders and to really pressure for the transformation that we need. You've obviously got this program of looking at 100,000 hectares of degraded lands over the next five years and restoring them. What's the future going to look like over those five years? Our intention is really having the producer in the center of all the actions that we implement from now on. We understand, as I mentioned before, that without the producer, we are not going to achieve the transformation. So for the next five years, we see ourselves in the fields together with producers seeking for innovative solutions. Without this partnership with producers, we are not going to achieve our ultimate goal of ending deforestation and conversion in our soil supply chain in Brazil. Thank you very much indeed. Look forward to hearing more about how the progress develops over the next five years. But for now, Renata Nogreia from Cargill, South America. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. A few days ago, I spoke with Tiffany Aries, a consultant at the Carbon Trust, about their new route to net zero standard and how it can help companies navigate the route to decarbonisation and target setting on the short, medium and long term. We're going to talk a bit about corporate net zero planning. So for a bit of context, Tiffany, what do we really mean by net zero? Net zero is when a company has fully measured its value chain emissions. So that's including their scopes one, two, and three, 
They have set near and long term targets, which are aligned with science and are also decarbonizing each year by the required rate of these targets set across their full boundary. In the next zero target year, the company would then also need to compensate for their residual emissions. So the emissions that they haven't been able to decarbonize that are left over at the end. And also they do have the option to neutralize emissions throughout their journey as well. But this is an optional add-on that the companies can do. Do you think that net zero planning has, has really now providing the narrative that allow businesses to properly focus on decarbonisation? It's definitely the most comprehensive guidance that we've ever had. We're really able now to better address the challenges and the sector guidance that we have allows us to support sectors that have specific challenges more thoroughly. There's also definitely a much clearer message in terms of the action that's required from corporates, as well as providing corporates the confidence that actually Investing in low carbon technologies, investing in low carbon business models, changing their business models, investing in better product design, new product design and all sorts of supplier engagement programs and initiatives that reduce emissions within the value chain is really something that is going to pay off. And in the long term, likely be almost a requirement for business to operate as the pressures from externals, both from a government level, but also at the consumer level is growing so much. At the Carbon Trust, you've been working on a route to net zero standard. What is this? We have been absolutely working on our route to net zero standard for the last couple of years. And through this, we essentially support many clients in their net zero journeys. And we were getting the ask from our clients who we were already supporting that they really wanted a way that they could communicate the progress that they were making on their net zero journeys. As I've already alluded to, net zero is obviously a long-term concept and a long-term strategy, and it's not something that you can achieve straight away. It's not something corporates can say, we're net zero, for example. It's really something that companies have to put a lot of things in place and, and they have to take lots of actions over time in order to align to it and then eventually achieve it. Businesses really needed a way of being able to communicate that they were actually doing all the right things and they were implementing all the right things in order to align to net zero and be able to communicate that in a credible way that brought credibility to their claims and set them apart in some cases from peers who maybe weren't acting. So this is why we developed the Reach Net Zero standard to support businesses who are serious about net zero to be able to credibly disclose and also to provide them advice along the way around how they could improve their current strategies and how they could decarbonize further as well. There are three certification levels incorporated into the standard. Can you outline what they are and what sort of companies are at each stage? We have a tiered approach, as you've just mentioned, to the standard. As a mission-driven organisation, we really want to be able to support clients who are at varying levels of their journeys. Some of those are very advanced in their sustainability journeys, but we also want to be able to encourage and support those that are just starting out as well. Therefore, the standard is essentially recognising these differences that we have between corporates, but is also trying to push ambition as well. Along our three tiers, we do have a requirement that companies progress along those tiers and so pushing ambition in that way. Our leading tier is the highest level of the tier and this essentially requires a 1.5 degree aligned reductions to be proved across the value chain. Net zero targets to have been set and also the company must be able to also demonstrate that they have um, leading practices in terms of carbon management. 
this is really what we would identify as excellent, if that makes sense. The tiers leading up to that have similar requirements in terms of being able to demonstrate good management practices, demonstrate carbon targets and reduction along those. The leading tier is really the one which is the net zero fully aligned level, I would say. And what sort of companies are at that level? In terms of companies we've worked with, so we've worked across multiple sectors to pilot the service offering and ranging from goods manufacturers all the way to professional services companies. And we've incorporated that feedback from the pilot stage in order to ensure that obviously the standard works and that it's useful and insightful and brings value to clients. We have had clients that have been successful and we've also had clients who haven't been in the sense that they've not managed to meet the requirements of some of the levels of the standard. But I think in both cases, the feedback has been that the process is really useful and that it's a really good way of identifying gaps or blind spots in terms of things that the companies should be looking at and should be thinking about and also forward looking. So having a clear roadmap ahead of um, what are the next steps. We will be doing our official launch of the Route net zero standard we'll be able to share all the companies that we've been working with on that you talked about the top tier what's the middle tier So the middle tier is the tier that we're calling the advancing tier. That requires you to have science-aligned targets and proving reductions year on year. It also requires you to have good carbon management practices as well. Um, So as you can see, there, there are subtle differences between the tiers. The differences do have quite a significant impact, even though they don't sound that different. I think also within the leading tier, we really have a focus on reviewing what's being done in scope three, whereas in the advancing tier, this is done at a more high level. And what sorts of companies or sectors tend to be at this sort of level? We do have a good representation of different sectors. As I mentioned, we are still in the pilot stage at the moment, but we do expect that the majority of companies, including a lot of our clients, will fall in this advancing tier. Clients who have already set science-based targets, who already measure their full value chain footprints, who are reducing their emissions year on year, but are now slowly transitioning into being able to set net zero targets. We have been waiting for net zero guidance in terms of specific sector pathways for a while. So that's what's delayed that process a little bit. We would expect the majority of companies at this stage in time to be either at the taking action, which is the first tier, or at the advancing tier. So tell me a bit more about the taking action tier then. What characterises companies at this stage? In the taking action tier, we're trying to encourage companies to move along their journey towards net zero. In this tier, we're looking at companies that have carbon targets in place already, that have measured their scope one and two and some key scope three categories and are also reducing emissions year on year as well. And again, we're looking for good carbon management practices as well. The difference here, obviously, is that we the science-based target at that level is not yet a requirement. That's why we've got the system of you must move along the tiers within you know certain certification cycles to encourage more businesses to move away from bottom-up targets towards more science-aligned targets from the advancing tier onwards. So companies, when they turn up for this, they are committing themselves to moving up from the lower tier to the middle tier to the higher tier. That's a commitment they have to make. Yes, exactly. So we allow a certain amount of time for companies to be able to do that, because also being able to showcase reductions also takes some time. But that is the idea that even companies who are just starting out, who haven't yet got a science-based target, 
they can start at that taking action tier and then move along to the advancing tier, which does require science aligned targets and reductions. And then finally move on to the advancing tier, which is 1.5 degree aligned net zero targets and reductions as well. What sort of sectors are typically at the taking action tier? I don't think it's necessarily sector specific, the companies that would be at the taking action tier. I think it's just companies that maybe historically haven't really had a focus on sustainability. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be due to the fact that they may have grown quite significantly in recent years. And so perhaps previously this wasn't a focus or perhaps they're in a sector where technology is lagging behind in terms of decarbonisation, or it might just not have been a business priority. And I think that is something that is changing because we do see, like I mentioned earlier, a lot more pressure on corporates to take action in this space and to engage. And it's something that consumers are increasingly asking for, but also we see it in the investor community as well. And you can really see that corporates are taking action through all sorts of voluntary carbon reporting initiatives, but also the science-based target initiative, it is a voluntary initiative. There has been such an uptake in that we can really see that the dial starting to move. Is there any requirement for transparency when companies take part in this programme? Do they have to publicly state where they are, which stage they're at, and are companies doing so? Absolutely. So you would need to disclose which level you are at. And we also have labels that companies can use in their communication and marketing, which actually state the level that they will be at. So you can really see a company evolve through the standard and through the levels. Are you seeing companies being proud to say, well, actually, we're only at the taking action level? Is there still a sense that, well, yes, we're getting to grips with this. Here we are, but we admit that we're not yet at an advanced stage, but we're doing something about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reason we called it the route to net zero standard is that it is a route, it is a journey. Net zero is not something that you can state to have achieved. It's a process. There's a lot of things that need to be put in place. It needs to be a focus for all parts of your business and engagement with your value chain as well. Absolutely, businesses do want to communicate that they're starting on their journey. And of course, when they've been on this journey for a while, they're they're absolutely keen to also be able to credibly communicate all the great steps that they've already taken. How should companies go about setting targets? So we recommend following the science-based target initiative program, aligning targets to science. This is obviously always going to be our recommendation. Those are really the targets that are the most credible for corporates today and also have already been widely adopted across sectors and also across geographies. You can see on the SBTOI website stats on companies that are showcased on there. This does cover almost a third of global GDP are companies that have signed up or already set science-based targets. So that would definitely be our recommendation. What about measuring progress? Obviously, it's very important. What are the keys to measuring progress against targets? Yeah, absolutely. Measuring progress is extremely important. This is what our standard is designed to do, is to validate the progress that companies have made. Having good systems in place in order to track all the data that you need in order to account for reductions, whether that be within your scope one and two or within your scope three. And also having a good awareness and plan of about the things that you are implementing and that you are going to be implementing in future so that you have a view of how your reductions should evolve. And if there are any discrepancies with what you're measuring and what you thought you would be able to achieve, being able to tweak that plan along the way is also really important.
Whilst you're on this net zero journey, as you describe it, what are the key communication messages that help internally and externally? What are the things that companies typically you find are communicating about and in fact help them in their progress? A key message, and this goes for both internal and external purposes, is that collaboration is key. We're all in this together. We need all companies and we need all sectors and we need all geographies to do their bit. Even within a company itself, we need every employee to understand that they are playing a role in this and in achieving this goal. In our review for forward-looking planning in the Route to Net Zero Standards, a critical part of that is assessing in our qualitative assessment that we are really looking for signals of engagement and engagement initiatives internally and with the value chain without that element of collaboration and working together towards a common goal, net zero will be very difficult to achieve. Let's think about some of the chances for different different scopes of emissions. I know this is something we hear a lot about, the scope one, two and three emissions, the direct, indirect and supply chain emissions. What are some specific challenges dealing with each of them? So that's scope one. For both scope one and two, so direct emissions within own operations, Often it's a challenge for, for example, multinational corporations who may have lots of sites globally, lots of different countries where accounting may be different. The grids in those countries will have different makeups. Being able to purchase renewables or not will be different. Having access to good quality data and good quality emission factors can be a challenge. And also it all comes back to collaboration and engagement, having teams internally who understand that this collecting good quality data and making this a business priority is critical to having accurate measurement and also measurement on which you can act. So if you have really poor measurement to begin with, you can implement lots and lots of different reduction initiatives, but those may not be reflected in your numbers if you're not able to collect data at a level that allows you to see the progress. So I think that is the main challenge for scope one and two. With regards to scope three, this is linked to, again, collaboration between teams internally. So for example, with product design teams or procurement teams to really be making those sustainable choices to reduce emissions that are going to come from scope three, and then to implement initiatives and work with suppliers and collaborate with industry bodies to find solutions where decarbonisation is difficult. It all comes down to collaboration and commitment really to making progress a reality. Certainly in scope three that we're really seeing some exciting changes now. Obviously it's the hardest part of putting together a net zero plan, but there's a lot of interesting stuff being done now and certainly collaboration is, is ever more coming to the fore. So looking forward, Tiffany, what are the pointers that we should look out for across industry that necessary progress is actually happening? Change is happening. Progress is happening. It's really easy to get into a rut looking at the news. Everything's doom and gloom and the world is about to end. <laughs> so I think half the battle is getting everyone to work together towards the common goal. Just like when you set yourself a personal challenge, companies really have to be bold and believe that they can actually achieve their net zero goals put in place all the procedures and incentive programs, policies, etc., in order to ensure that they're really in the best position to succeed and help us move closer to a decarbonized world. In order to see as a consumer, are companies progressing and what are they doing? You can definitely see companies putting out more and more content around all the great programs that they're launching, etc. But there are a lot of also voluntary initiatives, uh, voluntary reporting initiatives, and also the, the science-based target is starting to do this, in which you can actually see the progress that companies are making. 
we have moved to an era of more transparency, which is critical because with that transparency also adds the layer of accountability and companies have been becoming a lot more accountable and we can really see progress being made across the board. It's nice to have some positive news and let's hope that the progress continues and the companies maintain the level and rate of change. But for now, Tiffany Aries from Carbon Trust, thanks very much. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. There's a great new podcast featuring environment and human rights expert Etel Higon in conversation with Innovation Forum's Toby Webb. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, everything you need to know about these is available online. And don't forget you can save €200 on tickets to the Plastics and Packaging event if you use special podcast listener discount POD200. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye. Thank you.